0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. And amen. Uh, Jason, our worship band, thank you guys so much uh, for leading us in worship. Today we're going to be in Psalm 8. And so you can get out your Bibles or unlock your Bibles, however you do that these days. And let's turn to Psalm 8. But first I want to reflect a little bit on this summer. You know, the Lord has used these Psalms so much in my life. And and this happens every time we study the Psalms, study some kind of wisdom, literature. I I rediscover each time uh, that I don't naturally think about things the way I should. I don't naturally line up with the way the scriptures Uh, view life. And uh, each time is a chance to kind of rethink my thinking. And so I was thinking back over the summer and really the way I think about some things has changed. I remember Todd came and taught us on Psalm 63. And Psalm 63 teaches us that we can rejoice. We can be honest even in the middle of our trials. But that's not the way I usually think about it. I usually think I got to be winning. I got to have it all together. And that's what will make other people praise God. But it's not true. Then Will, Will Klotz came and taught us on Psalm 37 that reminded us, don't fret. Don't feed yourself on the bread of anxious toil, but wait on the Lord. And it reminded us that when we wait on the Lord, God exceeds our expectations. But me, naturally, I don't like to wait. I would rather feed myself on anxious toil to get what I want now than wait on God for something better. Maybe it's just me. Jason Ellis came and taught us on Psalm 90. They told us that the Lord is our dwelling place, not some palace, not some promised land. We find our satisfaction in the Lord. But me, I, I constantly look for satisfaction in this world and the things around me. And last week, Mark came and reminded us of Psalm 3 that says, God is not stingy with his peace, but I am stingy with my trust in him. And I somehow convince myself that the battles I'm facing are too big for him. And these psalms, they remind us to rethink our thinking. And this all leads to the heart of the matter for our psalm today, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is rare because David writes it. He gives us his goal in writing the psalm. He tells us why he's writing this. And it's in the first and the last verse. He repeats himself. And there's probably even a heading in your Bibles above the psalm that says this is for public worship. This is for the church. See, David, he's writing these words because he wants to change you. And he wants to change me. He wants you to rethink something. But it's not just rethink your thinking. He wants you to rethink your worship. See, I don't know about you, but worship is not always my first inclination. It's not always my gut reaction is worship. And so, I don't know about you. I don't find, every time I face a trial, every time something happens unexpected, I'm just, boom, go straight to worship. So, David has a goal in mind. David wants to see if he can tempt you and tempt me to rethink our worship. He wants to see if he can provoke praise out of us. He wants to see if he can incite awe out of our hearts that maybe aren't naturally inclined this way. And so the question for you as we open up God's word is, are you open to rethinking your worship this morning? Will you allow yourself to be captivated by the majesty of God, even if that means letting go of some cynicism, letting go of some pride, letting go of some assumptions, because make no mistake about it. You may not realize this, but you were created for worship. You need worship the same way you need oxygen and water and food. Worship is meant to give you the strength to live. And so that's our big idea this morning, and the big idea of Psalm 8. You are never stronger than when you are worshiping. You're never stronger than when you are worshiping. Let's read Psalm 8 together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David here, he's going to give us four things that ought to incite worship in us. The first thing is his surprising strength, his surprising strength. And what's surprising about his strength is where it is found. So he starts off saying, hey, God! God's splendors is splashed across the skies. Any of us on any night can go outside and we can look up and we can see things too big for us to comprehend, things too powerful for us to manipulate. They're way bigger than us, but that's not where the strength is found. He said he has established strengths in babies and infants. Now, of all the words that I would use to describe a baby, strong is not one of them. In fact, y'all, right now, right here, right now, I will challenge every baby in this church to a fight. All of them. All of them at the same time. And you know what? I'm not worried about it even a little bit. I'm way stronger than they are. So listen, I love babies. But let's face it, they are weak. And a little immature sometimes, if we're honest. And he contrasts babies and infants with, he calls them foes, enemies, avengers. Avengers. Now, the word Avengers is helpful because we have those in the comic books, and that kind of gets at what he's talking about. So, picture like the Marvel Avengers, but they're the bad guys, not the good guys, okay? This whole Psalm is kind of a retelling, it's a poetic retelling of the first few chapters of Genesis. And so, most people say, he has in mind Genesis 3, the Nephilim, these kind of Greek demigods who tyrannically pushed everyone else around, did whatever they wanted to do, ruled with an iron fist, okay? So he, picture in the ancient Near East, they would have pictured kind of the, the strongest, you know, most bulging, muscle, hairy-chested, tatted-out warrior around, okay? Maybe even think Goliath from David and Goliath. Now, those people, those Avengers, they're the strong ones. Now, also, guys, to understand how this would've, they would have interpreted this, we, we have to uh, understand the ancient Near East view of children, Okay, which was very different than today's view of children. So today it's totally feasible. I could totally see opening Instagram and there's a parent on there just talking, you know, my babies give me so much strength. My babies make me so strong. They would never say that in the ancient Near East, okay? Never. The ancient Near East view of children was a little more like the view of children when I grew up in the 80s. So I heard a guy say one time, you know, I grew up in the 80s before children were important. <laughs> this, it's best summed up. The best summary I've ever heard was uh, from Bluey's father. Have you all watched Bluey? If you haven't watched Bluey, you need to watch Bluey. Our whole family loves the show. In one episode, the father sits down, the, the siblings, Bluey and Bingo, and he says, I'm going to tell you a real life fairy tale about growing up in a wild place called the 80s. There were no helmets. Trampolines didn't have nets, and moms were allowed to be mean. It was a wild place. <laughs> now, in the ancient Near East, okay, their view on this whole spectrum was much closer to the kind of the 80s parent view. And we have to understand, y'all, they, they grew up in an agrarian tribal culture, okay? Survival was hard. It was always a struggle. You were always surrounded by enemies bigger than you. So, you love your children. You absolutely love your children, but you would not say they are your strength. They cannot plow a field to feed you. They cannot wield a sword to protect you. So an infant cannot establish strength over a mighty avenger unless, unless we have the wrong view of strength. See, there's one thing one thing that little infant will do that an avenger will never do. A helpless, weak infant will cry out to something far greater than himself. The strength that a child has over a mighty foe is the strength of praise. At least that's how Jesus interpreted it. So in Matthew 21... Jesus, he's going around, so this is right when he cleanses the temple, you know, and kicks everybody out. He's healing the weak, and it says there are children in the temple, and those children begin to cry out to him. They begin to cry out, cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And in that moment, Jesus says Psalm 8 is being fulfilled. He quotes Psalm 8. But he quotes the Greek translation. That's what they spoke back then. And even now, you can go read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it translates it, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The strength of babies is the strength of praise. And that's exactly what began to unfold. Those mighty Romans got fearful. Those religious Leaders were shaking in their boots. They were terrified. Why? Because some children were praising the one true God. Dale Ralph Davis said it this way. There is a strange wallop in the praises of God's people that silences God's enemies. Sometimes the mightiest weapon in God's arsenal is not argument or brilliance, nor eloquence, nor philosophy, but... Praise and the humblest believer can use it. How about you? What weapon are you using in your struggles and in your battles in your life today? Where do you find strength? Is it in yourself? Listen, if you're always trying to figure things out and stay on top of things and manage everything and always trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and then God, you know, he's maybe just kind of your personal assistant or your life coach, then you are not as strong as you could be. You are never stronger than when you are worshiping. Next, David, he shows us God's gracious care. His gracious care. Look at verse three and four. David, he looks up to the skies and he declares, these are your heavens. These are the work of your fingers. You set the moon and the stars in place. You put them there. He's saying, we live in a God-directed world. And what amazes me is David had no idea how right he was. So they estimate on any clear night, David could have walked out and he could have seen between two and 3,000 stars in the sky. But you know what? If he lived today and he had a little money and could buy a really good pair of binoculars, he could have looked up and seen up to 100,000 stars. But what if David, if David had one of the, the most powerful telescopes like we have today that we send into space to, to look out? He would have seen billions of galaxies. Did you know, did you know, if you... If you say the Milky Way, so our galaxy, the galaxy we're in, if you say, okay, let's make that the size of North America. Our solar system, so the Earth and our eight or nine planets, I don't know, it seems to change these days, whatever, however many there are, that is just the size of a coffee cup. And scientists estimate there are up to 100 billion such galaxies. Y'all, creation is literally too vast for us to comprehend. And God directs all of it, every square inch like clockwork. Each is right where it should be all the time, every time, in perfect obedience to its master. Which makes what he says next even more surprising. Yet, he says, God pays special attention to little old you and me. So that analogy where the, you know, the Milky Way is North America, our solar systems, the coffee cup, y'all, we don't even show up. Like I don't have an example of something small enough to tell you what we would be in that analogy. But he says he's mindful of man. When he says he's mindful of man, this isn't just a general awareness. Oh yeah, I know Clint's around. I think I've met him before. No, no, no. This is, this is his care and concern in the minute details of life. This God who directs billions of galaxies has an eye for detail in your life. So if, if we're the children and if we're the babies and the infants, he is the attentive mother who always has an eye on her child, who knows its needs and always attends to them. See, God, it turns out is maybe not like some of those 80s parents. He loves and he cares for his children very much. And so all David could do is kind of ask this rhetorical question, what is man? And it, again, it's not a real question. It's a rhetorical question. It's kind of this perplexed joy. He has no doubt that it is true that God cares for us. He just can't imagine why that is. And so it's really, it's really an exclamation, what a God. What a God that created all of this, but cares for us. What about you this morning? Do you trust that God not only created the cosmos, but that he cares for you? Do you know that he is attentive and mindful of you? See, I would guess that some, if not all of us, came in this morning carrying some burdens that God never intended you to carry. The burdens of worry and doubt and fear, and insecurity, even maybe the burden of anger that life isn't working out the way you hoped it would. And so let me just ask you a question this this morning. Would you like to set those burdens down? You can. You can do it because it's not all on you. You can trust yourself to his care. At least that's what Jesus said. I have to think Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, loved Psalm 8 because it shows up over and over again in his Gospel. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Let this amazing cosmos, this amazing creation, let it teach you a lesson about my care for you. He says, Look at the birds. God provides for them every day. How much more will he for you, his treasured creation? Look at the lilies. God clothes them beautifully how much more will he for you, his treasured creation? And then Jesus rightly identifies this is a matter of faith. See, we often think, you know, my ability to trust Jesus is a matter of him doing things for me. Like if he'll show up and do what I need him to do, then I can trust him, but it's not true. Because this week you've got some things you want him to do, some ways you want him to behave. And if he does that next week, there will be more. And next week, there will be more. And next week, there will be more. And eventually, you're just left with faith. Are you going to trust him or not? And he's like any good parent. He wants his kids to trust him no matter what comes. So now, now is the time for you to trust God. He has proven himself many times. He has put the moon and the stars in their place. And so you can trust and worship him today. Well, next David tells us about God's clear revelation. We should worship God because of his clear revelation. So the question is, how does David know that God cares for him? Where did he get that idea? It wasn't just from the moon and the stars. Well, I'm reminded of the first worship song I ever learned and probably the first worship song many of us ever learned. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, verse five through eight, there is a summary of Genesis 1, 26 through thirty-one. He's saying, "I know this is true because I read the Bible. I read Genesis, and we have to understand what he is saying about man is very different from what the world around him would have said about man. He was surrounded by ancient Near East paganism, and so, for example, the Babylonians they had this creation myth that said man was." really just an accident and a slave to the gods. So the gods didn't mean to create us, whoops-a-daisy, but now that they're here, they're like our janitors. They're here to get us stuff, do our drudge work, make us happy. Of course, today we have many other answers for what is man. We live in a mostly a materialistic culture. Materialism says all that there is is what I can touch, taste, see, feel, and hear. That's all there is. And so all you are is essentially a biological machine. You're a collection of molecules doing stuff. So Francis Crick, who's a famous scientist, most of us learned about him because he helped us learn the double helix uh, uh, size and shape of DNA. He said this, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That's all you are. So that's a diff- another answer to what is man. Of course, that led inevitably to the postmodern answer to what is man. It says if this is true, if we're just biological machines, then man is of no importance. There is no inherent Value in man. There's all the, the only meaning that there is is what we collectively have decided you're worth. We have crowdsourced your value. And we can change our minds anytime that we want to. So, Richard Rorty is a famous postmodern philosopher. He said, famously said, Truth is made rather than found. We make up truth rather than discover what actually is true. Now, here's what I want us to understand. Lots of people believe this about what is man. And they are not stupid. We're not all just smarter than they are. In fact, I would argue this is the logical conclusion if all you have is your own senses and your own appetites. Without revelation, we have no idea what the value of man is. But... From the Bible, from Genesis 1, we get information from outside of ourselves, and it tells us that man is royal, that we are made in God's image and likeness. It says we have a purpose, that we're put here as God's like vice regents on this earth. We're stewards of his creation until he returns. And so verse 5, he says something that no one else would have ever said in the ancient Near East. He says, man is a little lower than the angel's. Now, neither the paganism of the ancient Near East or the materialism of today would ever say that. See, they would kind of start at the bottom and make us a little tick up. They would say, man, is kind of like the best animal. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God's revelation says. It, It starts at the top. And it says, you and I are much closer to angels than we are to animals. And what I want us to understand is, y'all, we, we don't take this position because we're smarter than everyone else or because we're like Sherlock Holmes and we pieced together all the clues and read all the clues just right. No, no, no. We know this because God in his grace stooped down and told us. He found a way to bridge the gap between God and man and reveal himself in a way that we can understand it. Have you ever considered what a miracle that is? Think about this. Have you ever tried to communicate to somebody from a different country or with a different language than you? It's almost impossible. I mean, other human beings, just a few hundred miles apart, and we cannot communicate with each other. Heck, y'all, I can't communicate with people in my own house sometimes, okay? We share DNA and cannot communicate sometimes. The Creator. This is a miracle the creator of billions of galaxies, found a way to communicate himself to us. His clear revelation should make us fall at his feet and worship. It should inspire awe in all of us. Lastly, David praises God for his certain plan. His certain plan. He says, man is meant to be crowned with glory and honor. And is meant to have all of creation under our control. In verse 6 he says, all things under our feet. It's a symbol of total domination, total dominion. In fact, this is actually a, a practice in the ancient Near East. A king, a victorious king, would bring the defeated king in front of him. He would lay down his feet and that king would literally put his foot on the neck of the defeated king. Put him under His feet. It's a way of saying, I am victorious, and you are now in submission to me. Now, if we're honest, don't we read that and think, wait a minute, is that true? Or is that is has God's plan been thwarted somehow? I mean, there's this word, there's two words that are just like little hangnails in this verse, all, everything in submission to man. Now, if it said some, I could get on board with that. I mean, we're kind of at the top of the food pyramid around here. Okay. I can get some, I can get on board with that, but everything. Y'all, I don't know about you. I'll look around and I don't see everything in submission to us. I see sickness. I see tragedy. I see Greed. Everywhere I look, I see evil. I see brokenness. I see God's people suffering. I see evil prospering. It feels like they are not subject to us. It feels like we are enslaved to them. Enter Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 6 through 9, interprets Psalm 8 for us. And here's here's essentially what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It says, Psalm 8 will never make any sense to you as long as you're looking at yourself. You will never fulfill Psalm 8. So don't look at yourself. Listen, we failed miserably as God's vice regents on this earth. So he says, Look at Jesus. Don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. He succeeded everywhere you failed. So let's read Hebrews 2, starting in verse 6. He says, It has been testified somewhere. Psalm 8, that's where it's been testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So that's all mate. Now the writer of Hebrews continues. Now in putting everything in, subject, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So he's doubling down on the all, on the everything. He's not qualifying. He's saying God meant when he said Everything. But then he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's acknowledging, hey, you walk out your door today, you don't see this all in full force yet. What gives? So he continues, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He says, we don't look at ourselves, we see Jesus. And Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. See, Psalm 8 said two things would be true of man. All things, number one, all things would be subjected to him. Number two, he would be crowned with glory and honor. So Hebrews is saying, Jesus has done the second so we can be certain about the first. We don't see yet God's plan in full, final, living color. It's true. But we have seen Jesus And we saw him because he put on flesh. He died for our sins and then he rose again. Hebrews is saying that the crown of thorns that Jesus wore is the Psalm 8 crown of glory. And because he wears the crown now, you know that one day all things will be subjected to him. So you can think about it like D-Day. That famous great victory in Normandy in World War II. Now, after the victory at D-Day, was the war over? No. Y'all, in fact, the war would go on for another full year. And so think about this. The day after D-Day, the day after that great victory, if you woke up in occupied France or in Poland or even in Germany, you're going to look around and what are you going to see? You're going to see a bunch of Nazi flags flying everywhere. The, The world is not yet subjected under the control of the Allies. But you know what you could do? You could open up the newspaper. Instead of looking at what's in front of your face, you could look at Normandy. You could look at that victory, and you could know that it was not yet fully complete, but it was assured. Because the Allies were crowned victors at Normandy, even though all things are not yet subjected to their control, it was inevitable that it would be one day. And wouldn't that change how you lived? Wouldn't that change the hope that you had for today, and this is why, this is why, men and women, you, we are never stronger than when we are worshiping, because when you are worshiping, you are teaching your soul that God's plan isn't certain because of me. I'm not the Eight man. God's plan is certain because of Jesus. He is the Psalm Eight man. So as I think through this psalm, I really thought of two main applications for my life and your life. The first is this. Fight your battles with praise instead of pride. Fight your battles with praise instead of pride. So how most of us fight our battles is we do one of two things. We have one of two, or of two approaches. The first is to think too highly of yourself. And when you do that, you say, I can. Maybe through my determination or my willpower or my smarts or my work ethic or my talent. In some way, I am going to overcome this. I can the other is to think too low of yourself, and that's to say, I can never. I can never. And maybe I'm too sinful. Maybe I'm too unlovable. Maybe I've failed too many times. But whatever it is, whether you're saying I can or I can never, both are forms of pride. And here's why you're looking at yourself. Both are forms of looking at yourself. And Hebrews 2 says, don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. You don't need a mirror. You need a picture. Don't look at yourself. Look at him. So this morning, where do you need strength established in your life? Is it against sin, against sickness, against brokenness? Maybe you're in the midst of some complicated situation. You don't know what to do. Or maybe you're in the middle of a trial it has been going on a long time and you honestly don't know if you have the strength anymore. Let me tell you, you will find far more strength in your praise than in your pride. In looking at Jesus instead of looking at yourself. So be like that weak infant and baby. Weak, dependent, but full of praise. Say it with David. Say it with those children in the temple. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you'll find the strength. The second is this. Praise is contagious. Praise is contagious. You know, all growing up in high school, there was a sign above our football practice field where I stole this from. And it said, enthusiasm is contagious. And it was really big, big banner, and you had to go, you had to run earned it. There was no other way onto the practice field. It was huge. And that sign taught me how to praise even when I feel like I don't have the strength. See, it's important that it was on the practice field. You may say, well, why why don't you put it on the game field? Isn't that where you really want the enthusiasm, you know, the cheering and the scoring the touchdown and yay, yay, yay? Well, because anyone can have enthusiasm on on game night with the band and the cheerleaders and the crowd and you catch the winning touchdown, it takes zero strength to be enthusiastic in that moment. Literally, anyone and everyone can. But what about when it's a Tuesday afternoon in August and it's 100 degrees, things aren't going well. Y'all, had one season, we lost our first five games in a row, okay? We're on the struggle bus. It takes strength to have enthusiasm in that moment, doesn't it? And so you well, you got there, man, and you, you, you're, you haven't won a game, you're not very good, it's hot, you're tired, you know, you got a test tomorrow, your girlfriend just broke up with you, all this stuff going on, and you don't feel like being enthusiastic. But then you'd run under the sign. you're like, I guess I'm supposed to do this, I don't know. And then some other guy would start to show enthusiasm. And you know what? At first it was annoying, but... After a second, man, all of a sudden it became easier for you to have joy and to have energy and to have enthusiasm. And so you'd make yourself do it. And as you made yourself do it, it got easier and easier. And then the guy next to you, he'd see you do it. And he'd start having joy and excitement and enthusiasm. And and then another guy would chime in. And before long, everyone found themselves filled with a new strength. You had an energy that you never had before. Y'all, it's the same with worship. It's the same with praise. Praise is contagious to your own heart. Did you know that? Praise is contagious to your own heart. Your praise will change you. You know, many times we feel like we have to feel strong before we can come worship God. You know, like I've figured out, I'm blessed, I'm, I'm doing well, and now we can praise God. But there are many, many, many times you choose worship. Maybe you don't feel like it at first, but you choose to praise. And as you do, that praise gives you a strength you didn't have before. And maybe, listen, maybe you're here and it's been a long time since you felt like you could worship God. And you're waiting for inspiration or you're waiting to fix yourself up. Here's my advice to you today. Praise him by faith. And as you do, you will find yourself changing. You will find your strength growing. You will find strength in praise. But you know what? Praise is also contagious to the watching world. Praise is contagious to the people around you. And this is the goal of David in writing this psalm. It's not just for his own private praise. He wants it to be contagious. Remember verse 1 and verse 9, the same words repeated. I want you to notice a couple of things. Where should God's name be praised? In all the earth. David expects, I'm writing this somewhere in Israel but one day what I'm writing here will become contagious and it will spread throughout the earth. And whose Lord is it? Oh, Lord. It doesn't say a Lord, some Lord, the Lord, even David's Lord. Our Lord. And so the picture is that the whole earth will be filled with people declaring the majesty of their God, the God that they know personally. And that means, men and women, your praise isn't just for you. It's not just to give you strength. It gives others strength. It causes others to rethink their worship. And so I've got a question for us as a church today. Can our church be a place where the praise of God is contagious, where there is enthusiasm and joy for the things of God, where church is not a have to, it is a get to, where it's a joy to serve, where we openly delight in his word where we don't care what the weather is doing or what the sound system is doing, we will not be deterred from making the majesty of God known. A place where this community doesn't see us, they see Jesus because of our worship. If that's, listen, if we can do that, what is true of us individually will also be true of us as a church. We are never stronger than when we are worshiping. So I'm going to invite our worship band to come back up. We're going to close the service the way we started it. The way, just the way Psalm 8 begins and ends the same way. We're going to close in worship. Here's what we're doing. We're not just singing some words. We're not just repeating some words on a screen. It's a chance to display our strength. We are, in a way, flexing our muscles and declaring he is our strength. It is a way for us to look at Jesus. And as we do, I want us to prayerfully pray that this praise will be contagious. And maybe it needs to be contagious this morning in your own heart. Maybe it needs to be contagious for someone else in your life or someone next to you. Let me pray, and we'll close in a song.